Section sixteen, part B of the Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Lafaro, New South Wales, Australia. The Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume One, by Anonymous, translated by Dr. Jonathan Scott. Section 16, Part B One of the gentlemen answered on behalf of the rest, Do not wonder at our conduit in regard to yourself, and that hitherto we have not granted your request. It is out of kindness to save you the pain of being reduced to the same condition with ourselves. If you have a mind to try our unfortunate destiny, you need but speak, and we will give you the satisfaction you desire. I told them I was resolved on it. Let what would be the consequence. Once more, said the gentleman, we advise you to restrain your curiosity. It will cost you the loss of your right eye. No matter, I replied. Be assured that if such a misfortune befall me, I will not impute it to you, but to myself. He farther represented to me that when I had lost an eye, I must not hope to remain with them, if I were so disposed, because their number was complete, and no addition could be made to it. I told them that it would be a great satisfaction to me never to part from such agreeable gentlemen, but if there were a necessity for it, I was ready to submit, and let it cost me what it would. I begged them to grant my request. The ten gentlemen, perceiving that I was so fixed in my resolution, took a sheep, killed it, and after they had taken off the skin, presented me with a knife, telling me it would be useful to me on an occasion which they would soon explain. "'We must sew you in this skin,' said they, "'and then leave you, upon which a bird of a monstrous size, called a rock, will appear in the air, and, taking you for a sheep, will pounce upon you.' and soar with you to the sky. But let not that alarm you. He will descend with you again, and lay you on top of a mountain. When you find yourself on the ground, cut the skin with your knife and throw it off. As soon as the rock sees you, he will fly away for fear and leave you at liberty. Do not stay, but walk on till you come to a spacious castle covered with plates of gold, large emeralds, and other precious stones. Go up to the gate, which always stands open, and walk in. We have each of us been in that castle, but will tell you nothing of what we saw, or what befell us there. You will learn by your own experience. All that we can inform you is that it has cost each of us our right eye. And the penance which you have been witness to is what we are obliged to observe in consequence of having been there. The history of each of us is so full of extraordinary adventures that a large volume would not contain them. But we cannot explain ourselves farther. When the gentleman had thus spoken, I wrapped myself in the sheep's skin, held fast the knife which was given to me, and after the young gentleman had been at the trouble to sew the skin about me, they retired into the hall and left me alone. The rock they spoke of soon arrived. He pounced upon me, took me in his talons like a sheep, and carried me up the summit of the mountain.
When I found myself on the ground, I cut the skin with the knife, and throwing it off, the rock at the side of me flew away. This rock is a white bird of a monstrous size. His strength is such that he can lift up elephants from the plains and carry them to the tops of mountains, where he feeds upon them. Being impatient to reach the castle, I lost no time, but made so much haste that I got thither in half a day's journey, and I must say that I found it surpassed the description they had given me of its magnificence. The gate being open, I entered a square court, so large that there were round it ninety-nine gates of wood of sanders and aloes, and one of gold, without reckoning those of several superb staircases that led to apartments above, besides many more which I could not see. The hundred doors I spoke of opened into gardens or storehouses full of riches, or into apartments which contained many things wonderful to be seen. I saw a door standing open just before me, through which I entered into a large hall. Here I found forty young ladies of such perfect beauty as imagination could not surpass. They were all most sumptuously apparelled. As soon as they saw me, they arose, and without waiting my salutations, said to me, with demonstrations of joy, "'Noble sir, you are welcome.' and one thus addressed me in the name of the rest. We have long been in expectation of such a gentleman as you. Your main assures us that you are master of all the good qualities we can desire, and we hope you will not find our company disagreeable or unworthy of yours. They obliged me, notwithstanding all the opposition I could make, to sit down on a seat that was higher than their own, and when I expressed my uneasiness, that is your place, said they. You are at present our lord, master, and judge, and we are your slaves, ready to obey your commands. Nothing, madam, so much astonished me as the solicitude and eagerness of those fair ladies to do me all possible service. One brought hot water to wash my feet, a second poured sweet-scented water on my hands, Others brought me all kinds of necessaries, and change of apparel. Others again brought in a magnificent collation, and the rest came with glasses in their hands to fill me delicious wines, all in good order, and in the most charming manner possible. I ate and drank, after which the ladies placed themselves about me, and desired an account of my travels. I gave them a full relation of my adventures, which lasted till night came on. When I had finished my narrative to the forty ladies, some of them who sat nearest me stayed to keep me company, whilst the rest, seeing it was dark, rose to fetch tapers. They brought a prodigious number which by the wonderful light they emitted exhibited the resemblance of day, and they disposed them with so much taste as to produce the most beautiful effect possible. Other ladies covered a table with dry fruits, sweetmeats, and everything proper to relish the liquor. A sideboard was set out with several sorts of wine and other liquors. Some of the ladies brought in musical instruments, and when everything was ready, they invited me to sit down to supper. The ladies sat down with me, and we continued a long while at our repast. 
They that were to play upon the instruments and sing arose, and formed a most charming concert. The others began a kind of ball, and danced two and two, couple after couple, with admirable grace. It was past midnight ere these amusements ended. At length one of the ladies said to me, "'You are doubtless wearied by the journey you have taken to-day. It is time for you to retire to rest. Your lodging is prepared. But before you depart, choose which one of us you would like best to be your bedfellow.' I answered that I knew not how to make my own choice." as they were all equally beautiful, witty, and worthy of my respects and service, and that I would not be guilty of so much incivility as to prefer one before another. The lady who had spoken to me before answered, We are very well satisfied of your civility, and find it is your fear to create jealousy among us that occasions your diffidence. But let not this hinder you. We assure you that the good fortune of her whom you choose shall cause no feeling of the kind, for we are agreed among ourselves, that every one of us shall in her turn have the same honour, and when forty days are past, to begin again. Therefore make your selection, and lose no time to take the repose you need. I was obliged to yield to their entreaties, and offered my hand to the lady who spoke and who, in turn, gave me hers. We were conducted to a sumptuous apartment, where they left us, and then every one retired to her own chamber. I was scarcely dressed next morning, when the other thirty-nine ladies came into my chamber, all in different dresses from those they had worn the day before. They bade me good morrow, and inquired after my health, after which they conveyed me to a bath, where they washed me themselves, and, whether I would or no, served me with everything I needed. And then I came out of the bath. They made me put on another suit, much richer than the former. We passed the whole day almost constantly at table, and when it was bedtime, they prayed me again to make choice of one of them for my companion. In short, madam, not to weary you with repetitions, I must tell you that I continued a whole year among those forty ladies, and received them into my bed one after another. And during all the time of this voluptuous life we met not with the least kind of trouble. When the year was expired I was greatly surprised that these forty ladies, instead of appearing with their usual cheerfulness to ask me how I did, entered my chamber one morning all in tears. They embraced me with great tenderness one after another, saying, Adieu, dear prince, adieu, for we must leave you. Their tears affected. I prayed them to tell me the reason of their grief, and of the separation they spoke of. Fair ladies, let me know, said I, if it be in my power to comfort you, or if my assistance can be any way useful to you. Instead of returning a direct answer, Would, said they, we had never seen or known you. Several gentlemen have honoured us with their company before you, but never one of them had that comeliness, that sweetness, that pleasantness of humour, and that merit which you possess. We know not how to live without you. After they had spoken these words, they began to weep bitterly. My dear lady, said I, have the kindness not to keep me any longer in suspense. Tell me the cause of your sorrow. 
"'Alas!' said they, "'what but the necessity of parting from you could thus afflict us? "'Perhaps we shall never see you more. "'But if it be your wish, we should, "'and if you possess sufficient self-command for the purpose, "'it is not impossible, but that we may again enjoy the pleasure of your company.' "'Ladies,' I replied, "'I understand not what you mean. "'Pray explain yourselves more clearly.' well said one of them to satisfy you we must acquaint you that we are all princesses daughters of kings we live here together in the manner you have seen but at the end of every year we are obliged to be absent forty days upon indispensable duties which we are not permitted to reveal and afterwards we return again to this castle yesterday was the last of the year to-day we must leave you and this circumstance is the cause of our grief. Before we depart, we will leave you the keys of everything, especially those of the hundred doors, where you will find enough to satisfy your curiosity and to relieve your solitude during our absence. But for your benefit and our own personal interests, we recommend you to forbear opening the golden door, for if you do, we shall never see you again and the apprehension of this augments our grief. We hope, nevertheless, that you will attend to our advice. Your own peace and the happiness of your life depends upon your compliance. Therefore take heed. If you suffer yourself to be swayed by a foolish curiosity, you will do yourself a considerable injury. We conjure you to avoid the indiscretion, and to give us the satisfaction finding you here again at the end of forty days. We would willingly take the key of the golden door with us, but that it would be an affront to a prince like you to question your discretion and firmness. This speech of the fair princesses grieved me extremely. I omitted not to declare how much their absence would afflict me. I thanked them for their good advice, assuring them that I would follow it, and expressed my willingness to perform what was much more difficult, to secure the happiness of passing the rest of my days with ladies of such beauty and accomplishments. We separated with much tenderness, and after I had embraced them all, they departed, and I remained alone in the castle. The agreeableness of their company their hospitality, their musical entertainments, and other amusements, had so much absorbed my attention during the whole year, that I neither had time nor desire to see the wonders contained in this enchanted palace. I did not even notice a thousand curious objects that every day offered themselves to my view. So much was I charmed by the beauty of those ladies, and the pleasure they seemed to take, in promoting my gratification. Their departure sensibly afflicted me, and though their absence was to be only forty days, it seemed to me an age to live without them. I determined not to forget the important advice they had given me, not to open the golden door. But as I was permitted to satisfy my curiosity in everything else, I took the first of the keys of the other doors, which were hung in regular order. I opened the first door and entered in an orchard, which I believed the universe could not equal. I could not imagine anything to surpass it, 
except that which our religion promises us after death. The symmetry, the neatness, the admirable order of the trees, the abundance and diversity of unknown fruits, their freshness and beauty delighted my senses. Nor must I omit to inform you that this delicious orchard was watered in a very particular manner. There were channels so artificially and proportionately dug that they carried water in considerable quantities to the roots of such trees as required much moisture. Others conveyed it in smaller quantities to those whose fruits were already formed. Some carried still less to those whose fruits were swelling, and others carried only so much as was just requisite to water those which had their fruits come to perfection, and only wanted to be ripened. They far exceeded in size the ordinary fruits of our gardens. Lastly, those channels that watered the trees whose fruit was ripe had no more moisture than just what would preserve them from withering. I should never have tired of in examining and admiring so delightful a place, nor have left it had I not conceived a still higher idea of the other things which I had not seen. I went out at last with my mind filled with the wonders I had viewed. I shut the door and opened the next. Instead of an orchard I found here a flower garden which was no less extraordinary in its kind. It contained a spacious plot, not watered so profusely as the former, but with greater niceness, furnishing no more water than just what each flower required. The roses, jessamines, violets, daffodils, hyacinths, anemones, tulips, pinks, lilies, and an infinite number of flowers which do not grow in other places, but at certain times, were there flourishing all at once, and nothing could be more delicious than the fragrant smell which they emitted. I opened the third door and found a large aviary, paved with marble of several fine and uncommon colours. The trellis work was made of sandalwood and wood of aloes. It contained a vast number of nightingales, goldfinches, canary birds, larks, and other rare singing birds, which I had never heard of, and the vessels that held their seed and water were of the most precious jasper or agate. Besides, this aviary was so exceedingly neat that, considering its extent, I judged there must be not less than a hundred persons to keep it clean. But all this while not one appeared, either here or in the gardens I had before examined and yet I could not perceive a weed or anything superfluous or offensive to sight. The sun went down, and I retired, charmed with the chirping notes of the multitude of birds, who then began to perch upon such places as suited them, or repose during the night. I went to my chamber, resolving on the following days to open all the rest of the doors, excepting that of gold. The next day I opened the fourth, if what I had seen before was capable of exciting my surprise, what I now beheld transported me into perfect ecstasy. I entered a large court surrounded with buildings of an admirable structure, the description of which I will omit, to avoid prolixity. This building had forty doors, all open, and through each of them was an entrance into a treasury. Several of these treasuries contained as much wealth as the largest kingdoms. The first 
were stored with heaps of pearls, and, what is almost incredible, the number of those stones which are most precious, and as large as pigeons' eggs, exceeded the number of those of the ordinary size. In the second treasury there were diamonds, carbuncles, and rubies, in the third emeralds, in the fourth ingots of gold, in the fifth money, in the sixth ingots of silver, and in the two following money. The rest contained amethysts, chrysolites, topazes, opals, turquoises, and hyacinths, with all the other stones known to us, without mentioning agate, jasper, cordelian, and coral, of which there was a storehouse filled, not only with branches, but whole trees. Filled with astonishment and admiration at the view of all these riches, I exclaimed, if all the treasures of the kings of the universe were gathered together in one place, they could not equal the value of these. How fortunate am I to possess all this wealth with so many admirable princesses! I will not tire you, madam, with a detail of all the other objects of curiosity and value which I discovered on the following day. I shall only say that thirty-nine days afforded me but just as much time as was necessary to open ninety-one doors and to admire all that presented itself to my view so that there was only the hundredth door left, which I was forbidden to open. The fortieth day after the departure of those charming princesses arrived, and had I but retained so much self-command as I ought to have had, I should have been this day the happiest of all mankind, whereas now I am the most unfortunate. They were to return the next day, and the pleasure of seeing them again ought to have restrained my curiosity. But through my weakness, which I shall ever repent, I yielded to the temptations of the evil spirit, who allowed me no rest till I had involved myself in the misfortunes I have since suffered. I opened that fatal door, but before I had moved my foot to enter, I smelled pleasant enough, but too powerful for my senses, made me faint away. However, I soon recovered, but instead of taking warning from this incident to close the door, and restrain my curiosity, after waiting some time for the external air to correct the effluvia of the place I entered, and felt myself no longer incommoded. I found myself in a spacious vaulted apartment, the pavement of which was strewed with saffron. It was illuminated by several large tapers which emitted the perfume of aloes and ambergris, and were placed in candlesticks of solid gold. This light was augmented by gold and silver lamps, burning perfumed oils of various kinds. Among the many objects that attracted my attention was a black horse, of the most perfect symmetry and beauty that ever was beheld. I approached in order the better to observe him, and found he had on a saddle and bridle of massive gold, curiously wrought. One part of his manger was filled with clean, barley and sesame, and the other with rose-water. I laid hold of his bridle, and led him out to view him by daylight. I mounted, and endeavoured to make him move, but finding he did not stir, I struck him with a switch I had taken up in his magnificent stable. He had no sooner felt the blow than he began to neigh in a most horrible manner, and extending his wings, which I had not before perceived, flew up with me into the air. 
My thoughts were fully in keeping my seat, and considering the fear that had seized me, I sat well. At length he directed his course towards the earth, and lighted upon the terrace of a castle, and without giving me time to dismount, shook me out of the saddle with such force as to throw me behind him, and with the end of his tail he struck out my eye. Thus it was I became blind of one eye. I then recollected the predictions of the ten young gentlemen. The horse again took wing, and soon disappeared. I got up much vexed at the misfortune I had brought upon myself. I walked upon the terrace, covering my eye with one of my hands, for it pained me exceedingly, and then descended and entered into a hall. I soon discovered by the ten sofas in a circle, and the eleventh in the middle, lower than the rest, that I was in the castle whence I had been carried by the rock. The ten young gentlemen were not in the hall when I entered, but came in soon after, attended by the old man. They seemed not at all surprised to see me, nor at the loss of my eye, but said, We are sorry that we cannot congratulate you on your return, as we could wish, but we are not the cause of your misfortune. I should do you wrong, I replied. I lay it to your charge. I have only myself to accuse. If, they said, it be a subject of consolation to the afflicted to know that others share their sufferings, you have in us this alleviation of your misfortune. All that has happened to you we have also endured. We each of us tasted the same pleasures during a year, and we had still continued to enjoy them, had we not opened the golden door when the princesses were absent. You have been no wiser than we, and have incurred the same punishment. We would gladly receive you into our company, to join us in the penance to which we are bound, and the duration of which we know not, but we have already stated to you the reasons that render this impossible. Depart, therefore, and proceed to the court of Baghdad, where you will meet with the person who is to decide your destiny. After they had explained to me the road I was to travel, I departed. On the road I caused my beard and eyebrows to be shaven, and assumed a calendar's habit. I have had a long journey, but at last I arrived this evening, and met these, my brother calendars, at the gate, being strangers as well as myself. We were mutually surprised at one another, to see that we were all blind of the same eye, but we had not leisure to converse long on the subject of our misfortunes. We have only had time enough to bring us hither, to implore those favours which you have been generously pleased to grant us. The third calendar, having finished this relation of his adventures, Zobedi addressed him and his fellow calendars thus, Go wherever you think proper. You are at liberty. But one of them answered, Madam, we beg you to pardon our curiosity, and permit us to hear the stories of those gentlemen who have not yet spoken. Then the lady turned to the caliph, the vizier Javir, and Mesrur, and said to them, It is now your turn to relate your adventures. Therefore, speak. The grand vizier, who had all along been the spokesman, answered Zobedi, Madam, in order 
To obey you, we need only repeat what we have already said. We are merchants of Mosul, come to Baghdad to sell our merchandise, which lies in the Khan where we lodge. We dine today with several other persons of our condition. At a merchant's house of this city, who, after he had treated us with choice dainties and excellent wines, sent for men and women dancers and musicians. The great noise we made brought in the watch, who arrested some of the company, and we had the good fortune to escape. But it being already late, and the door of our khan shut up, we knew not whither to retire. We chanced, as we passed along this street, to hear mirth at your house, which made us determine to knock at your gate. This is all the account that we can give you, in obedience to your commands. Sir Beattie, having heard this statement, seemed to hesitate what to say, which the calendars, perceiving, prayed her to grant the same favour to the three Mosul merchants as she had done to them. Well then, said she, you shall all be equally obliged to me. I pardon you all, provided you immediately depart. So Beattie, having given this command in a tone that signified she would be obeyed, the caliph the vizier Mesrua, the three calendars, and the porter departed, without saying one word. For the presence of the seven slaves with their weapons awed them into silence. As soon as they had quitted the house, and the gate was closed after them, the caliph said to the calendars, without making himself known, You gentlemen, who are newly come to town, which way do you design to go, since it is not yet day? It is this, they replied, that it perplexes us. Follow us, resumed the caliph, and we will convey you out of danger. He then whispered to the vizier, Take them along with you, and tomorrow morning bring them to me. I will cause their history to be put in writing, for it deserves a place in the annals of my reign. The vizier Jafir took the three calendars along with him. The porter went to his quarters, and the caliph and the mesrua returned to the palace. The caliph went to bed, but could not sleep, being perplexed by the extraordinary things he had seen and heard. But above all, he was most concerned to know the history of Zabidi. What reason she could have to be so severe to the two black bitches, and why Ameni had her bosom so scarred? Day began to appear, whilst he was thinking upon these things. He arose and went to his council chamber and sat upon his throne. The Grand Vizier entered soon after and paid his respects as usual. Vizier, said the Caliph, the affairs that we have to consider at present are not very pressing. That of the three ladies and the two black bitches is the most urgent. My mind cannot rest till I am thoroughly satisfied in all those matters that have so much surprised me. Go, bring those ladies and the calendars at the same time. Make haste and remember that I impatiently expect your return. The vizier who knew his master's quick and fiery temper hastened to obey, and went to the ladies to whom he communicated in a civil way the orders with which he was charged to bring them before the caliph, without taking any notice of what had passed the night before at their house. The ladies put on their veils and went with the vizier. As he passed his own house, he took along with him the three calendars, 
who in the interval had learnt that they had seen and spoken with the caliph, without knowing him. The vizier conducted them to the palace with so much expedition that the caliph was much pleased. This prince, that he might observe proper decorum before the officers of his court, who were then present, ordered that the ladies should be placed behind the hangings of the door, which led to his own chamber, and placed the three calendars near his person, who, by their respectful behaviour, sufficiently evinced that they were not ignorant before whom they had the honour to appear. When the ladies were thus disposed of, the caliph turned towards them and said, When I acquaint you that I was last night in your house, disguised in a merchant's habit, you may probably be alarmed, lest you may have given me offence. You may perhaps believe that I have sent for you for no other purpose than to shew some marks of my resentment. But be not afraid. You may rest assured that I have forgotten all that has passed, and am well satisfied with your conduct. I wish that all the ladies of Baghdad had as much discretion as you evinced before me. I shall always remember the moderation with which you acted, after the rudeness of which you were guilty. I was then a merchant of Mosul, but am at present Harun al-Rashid, the fifth caliph of the glorious house of Abbas, and hold the place of our great prophet. I have only sent for you to know who you are, and to ask for what reason one of you, after severely whipping the two black bitches, wept with them. And I am no less curious to know why another of you has her bosom so full of scars. Though the caliph pronounced these words distinctly, the three ladies heard him well enough, yet the vizier, out of ceremony, repeated them. So Bidi, after the caliph, by his address, had encouraged her, began thus. End of section 16, part b.